Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to open, please, with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. The book of Revelation, chapter 6. We continue our studies in this wonderful, thrilling book of Revelation. A book that indeed gives us the picture of the climax of it all. I want you to understand that God has a program for this earth. He has a plan and everything, I assure you, is running according to schedule. And it will continue to do that. In spite of all that men may do, nations may do, kingdoms may do, God's train is never going to be derailed. And we're heading as fast as we can be toward that ultimate climax of earth's history. And so I hope you will follow us as we continue this study in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. This morning I want us to read verses 1 through 8. And we're going to deal today with the four horsemen of Revelation. The four horsemen of Revelation. If you do not have a personal copy of our outline of the book of Revelation, you'll find that that's what this particular chart is. It is just a brief outline, a simple outline of events that are dealt with in the book of Revelation, especially after the cross that you see uh, and the resurrection of our Lord. We begin there with Revelation chapter 1, which deals with the age of the church in which we are living now. And that is covered in chapters uh, uh, 1 down through uh, chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. Today, we're beginning in chapter 6. And you'll notice that we have designated uh, chapter 6 through 19 as that period that is revealed in the book of Revelation that deals with what we commonly call the period of the tribulation. And then in chapter 20, as you'll notice, we're dealing there in the 20th chapter of Revelation with the Messiah's kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. And then Revelation 21 and 22 deals with the climactic moments of world history. By the way, if you have not been getting these uh, messages and maybe you've had to miss, uh, we are recording all of these messages on Revelation you can have either any single copies of those or we can give them to you in bulk. So if you will see Brother Daniel Usher and some of the men in the control room at the end of the service and let them know your desire. Also, we have several people, by the way, who have requested tapes and we have quite a few of those that are stacking up on us back there. If you have ordered any of the tapes in the past, uh, please check with the young men after the service uh, and take care of those. By the way, all of our tapes here at the church are $2 a piece. Uh, you only get that kind of bargain here at the church. Uh, you don't get that anywhere else. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. You'll learn a lot more after you've heard a sermon a second or third time than you will just hear it one time through. I know that's true because some of you sleep five or ten minutes during the course of the first message. And so I want you, I want you to be sure and get it. You may have missed something. All right. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. And the verses read like this. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts, or four living creatures, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. 
And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature, or beast, say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death and hell, or the word is Hades, followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. In chapter 6 through 19 of this book of Revelation, we're given to us by inspiration and by John's pen an unfolding picture of a future seven-year period that will occur on this earth, and it is termed as the tribulation period. We call it that, and indeed it is rightly so named, for it will be a time of such sorrow and trial on this earth as man has never witnessed before, ever has witnessed or ever shall witness on this very earth. Jesus actually said, you remember in Matthew 24 and at verse 22 when he refers to this period in his Olivet Discourse, the Lord Jesus said that only his coming would actually prevent the destruction of all flesh upon this earth. In other words, there is going to be a dramatic intervention by our Lord in this very time known as the tribulation period. It, in truth, it is given the name tribulation for as Jesus described it again in, in Matthew 24, after telling us many things that would happen before the end of the age, the Lord Jesus then simply said, these, after mentioning all the things that happened, these are the beginnings of sorrows. Men who have studied Bible prophecy all of their lives are today actually startled at the fact that the setting for events that will transpire in this period of the tribulation are actually unveiling and unfolding before our eyes in this present day and age. It is not an unusual thing for a person who knows the Bible and has studied prophecy to pick up a newspaper any given day of the week and to begin to realize how God is setting the stage for this most traumatic event that has ever occurred on this planet Earth. You know, in the first century, we are actually 
the first century, the first generation of people who has ever lived on this earth to be able to witness the coming together of the beginning of the facts that are discussed in this passage of Scripture. The events that are today occurring in the Middle East are nothing more than God calling the attention of the world to that little spot on his planet Earth where so much is going to take place as is predicted in the prophetic word of God. Somebody said the other day, this must be the, this must be the battle of Armageddon that we're facing. I do not believe that. It may be the shifting of nations and the stirring of attitudes that will ultimately culminate in the final battle of Armageddon. And yet I do not believe that the conflict now that we're facing with the nation of Iraq is the battle or even the, or even the beginning of the battle of Armageddon. There are many other things that are going to have to take place according to prophecy before the final great battle the Bible predicts and that we call the battle of Armageddon. Now we have said that this period of time in chapter 6 through 19 is a seven year period of time of judgment of God upon this earth. All the inhabitants of the earth are going to experience it. That is, those who are here It will be a time that also the Old Testament prophets call the time of Jacob's trouble. It will be a time when God begins again to deal in a very particular way with the nation of Israel. You and I who are alive today and members of this generation are the first generation that has lived and witnessed in our time the fulfilling of the resurrecting again of the nation of Israel. Back in 1948, the nation of Israel was formed. And I want to tell you that was not by coincidence nor accident. According to the word of God, God is going to begin dealing again with the nation of Israel as he has promised to do so. Their time of God's dealing with them has not expired as I'll try to show you in just a moment. Now, many people ask me this question. Why is there going to be a time such as this, a time of tribulation upon this earth? And how do we know that it is going to last only a seven-year period? Now, according to chapter 5, in response to that question, and we looked at chapter 5 last Sunday. By the way, if you are not here, I hope you'll get that tape. And we're not trying to sell tapes. But I hope you'll get a hold of these that you can get in on what's taking place in our time and is literally coming to shape before our very eyes. Number one, one of the reasons for a coming time of judgment upon this earth. According to chapter 5 that we looked at last Sunday, it will be as as a means of Christ's final annulling of Satan's rule and control of this world. The choir sang so beautifully a moment ago and so appropriately for this time of the study in Revelation, this is my Father's world. And I talked to you from chapter 5 last week of who owns this world anyway. And we found in chapter 5 that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, was the only one worthy to take the scroll that was sealed with seven seals. And we identified that 
as in simple terms, the title deed to this very earth. It is God's title deed. It is rightly his by two reasons, by right of creation and by right of redemption. This world, this is my father's world and he alone is worthy to hold rule over this world. God entrusted it into Adam's hand, our forefather. He entrusted a man's hand, the ruling of this world. But you remember back in the book of Genesis that there came a usurper. Satan came deceiving the woman and leading them into handing over, as it were, the title deed of this world, the care of this world, into the hand of man. And yet, I want to tell you this. When God, into the hand of Satan, man handed over to him. And thus the Bible terms Satan as this, the prince of the power of the air. He is termed as the God, small g, the God of this world. And so the devil has taken authority and rule over this present world system. But it does not rightly belong to him. It rightly belongs to the Lord Jesus. Now watch this. He has paid the supreme price for that very, for this very world, for this earth that is his. In fact, it is his twofold. He is paid by, by, by the price of creation and by the price of redemption. Now, let me remind you of our little illustration last Sunday. You remember we said, take for example, a man who has purchased a piece of property. It belongs to him by right of the price that he has paid for it. But on that piece of property, there is an old squatter. And the man now lives in the house and on the property that is not owned by him at all. So the man who has bought the property and who has paid for it and it is legally his, comes to the old renter and tells him that this property is mine and you must vacate the premises. It does not belong to you. But the old renter, the old squatter, refuses to be budged or to move. And so the owner of that property does what? He goes back to the courthouse, gets a warrant from the sheriff. The sheriff or officers come with the man to evict the old squatter who does not rightly own that property. It belongs to another. And with title deed in the man's hand and with force, he is removed and evicted from that man's property. Now that in essence is what the book of Revelation is all about. In chapter five, the Lord is the only worthy one to hold title to this earth by right of creation, by right of the price of redemption, the blood that he shed on the cross. Now then, the devil has held sway over this world system. But though the Lord owns this world, and it is our Father's world, the old squatter is not going to give up without a fight. When the man who owns that property I've illustrated comes with the sheriff, the old squatter still refuses to move, so a fight ensues. A few windows are broken out, a few chickens are killed, grass is torn up, and a lot of damage is done, but the old fellow's finally put out. Now that's what we have right here in Revelation 6 through 19. We have in the light of our illustration, we have the sheriff, 
the officers, the man with the legal title, coming and saying, you must remove yourself from these premises. But he puts up a fight. The devil puts up a fight. And God, in Revelation 6 to 19, is pouring out the severest kind of judgment and wrath to evict the old squatter that our Lord, who rightly owns this earth, watch this, may come and rule and reign over this earth that is rightly his. Do you follow that illustration? Do you see that? Not yet like this. Come on, nod it. Now, nod it. Three deacons done nod it one way and that's all. All right, come on up. Now, all right, here's what I want you to see. That's what we're dealing with right here in this particular passage of the scripture. Now, the second reason that this judgment will come is not only the first reason to annul the rule of Satan, but the second reason is to judge all on this earth who oppose God and to bring in the fullness of his redemption. Redemption covers not only, and by the way, the word redemption, let me remind you again, means to release on the payment of a ransom. To release on the payment of a ransom. Now, when our Lord purchased our redemption for us by the ransom he paid on the cross, the shedding of his blood, he provided redemption threefold. For soul, for the soul who would trust him, he releases them from the very power, the penalty, and ultimately the presence of sin. But he also provided in that redemption, a redemption, a release for this body that is cumbered with care, susceptible to disease, susceptible to death. But God's son provided a redemption for this body. And Paul talks about that in the Corinthian letter. Uh, talks about the redemption of the body, redemption of this body that belongs to him. And the Bible teaches that in the resurrection, we shall rise and shall be given a new body like unto that of our Lord Jesus Christ. I feel a breeze stirred in my heart even thinking about that, don't you? Ah, the Lord's promised that. But now say, there's a, three, there's a third aspect of that redemption and that is soul, body, and the third is the world. God has provided redemption. Do you remember when man saying what happened? God put a curse on this earth. Prior to that, judgment of God because of man's sin. The earth brought forth as a fruitful womb of itself. In other words, a man, to use this simple illustration so we can get it. Uh, in other words, for a man to have beans, he didn't have to go out and plant beans. If a man wanted corn, he didn't have to go out and plant corn. If a man, Brother James, wanted tomatoes, he didn't have to plant tomatoes. And this guy right here grows the best ones you ever put in your mouth. But you see, before the fall, the earth brought forth of itself. But watch, God put a curse on this earth. And as a result of that, briars, thorns, thistles began to grow up of themselves. And now, if you want corn, beans, and tomatoes, you're going to have to plant them. You don't have to work at it. And the Bible said, man will earn his living by the sweat of his brow. Somebody asked me the other day up at Providence, why do you sweat so when you preach? And I said, well, Lord said you're supposed to earn your living with the sweat of your brow and I don't intend to get my living crooked. That's the reason I sweat when I preach. But the whole story is God had played the curse. Now watch what's going to happen. God's son provided a redemption, not only for soul, for body, but for the earth. And when our Lord Jesus, watch this, in the thousand year reign of our Lord, when he comes to this earth, think about it, 
the curse will be lifted from this earth. The Bible talks about the desert blossoming as a rose. It talks about men sitting under their own vine, their own fig tree. God will graciously provide. It is what has been known as the golden age, the age of prosperity, the age of peace. And God's promised that. I want to tell you something. It's not going to come about by the genius of man, but it's going to come about by and as a result of the power of our God who has said that's exactly what's going to take place. In that day, even the wild beast will be tamed. I can't wait to get over in there and talk to you about that great time of the reign of Christ. When children will play actually on the hole of the cockatrice den, a poisonous serpent. When the lamb and the lion shall lie down together. They'll eat straw. Listen, tame. Isn't that something? One of these days, listen, that's where, you, you want to know where this world's headed for? You know what's going to come of this world? That's what's going to come of this world. But before it does, judgment is coming. And I want to tell you here this morning, friends, if you are not ready to meet Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, all you have to look forward to is a fearful looking for of the judgment of God. And God, as sure as he promised salvation and will save the man who believes on him, will bring judgment and condemnation on the man or woman who refuses him. That's God's plan. Now then, second reason to judge this very world and to bring about the fullness of redemption. Now as to the period of this tribulation. We said that it will be a, a, a period of seven years. Now you say, where do you get that? In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. I want you to turn back there just briefly. Now if I don't get through the sermon this morning, I'll have to uh, fail on my preaching about going to the dogs tonight. But anyway, if I do, I'll just finish what I've started this morning. Is that all right? I'm going to do it anyhow. All right, uh, Daniel, chapter 9, and look at verse 24. Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 24. In the 24th verse, the Lord gives through Daniel this prophecy. He is talking about God's dealing with the nation and the people of Israel. Now follow this. He said in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, that's Israel, and, upon, and if, if there's any question about it, read the next. And upon thy holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation, and by the way, the word is atonement, for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now watch what he says. Know therefore and understand. Now he said 70 weeks, which are 70 weeks of years. And you'll see why we say that in this verse. So he's talking about not just simply 70 weeks of seven days, but he's talking about weeks of years. Seven, a week, seven years. In other words, two weeks, 14 years. So what he's talking about is 70 weeks of years. That totals out to 400 and 90 years. You follow that? All right, now watch. Know therefore, and he's going to break it down. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks. 
and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Now, threescore and two weeks. A score is 20. So what you've got here is 62 weeks, which comes out into the, uh, into the uh, amount of years. You've got 483 years. 483 years. Now, watch this. There was a divinely set period of time, 70 weeks, that God determines upon his people, upon Israel. God's going to deal with them. It's something like a divine clock that God sets up. And it's got 490 years of marked off time on it. Now, when the commandment went forth to restore and to rebuild, there was a king by the name of Artaxerxes Logomanus in the year 445 B.C., which issued that commandment for the city to be rebuilt, of course, and restored. And you can read about that in Ezra, Nehemiah, and so forth. But nonetheless, from that special point in time, God, as it were, pushed the button on his time clock and begun to deal with Israel and would continue to deal with them for 483 years. And we have no doubt as to when the clock stops. It stops when Messiah, notice verse number 20, uh, verse number 25 or verse number 26 of Daniel 9. And after three score and two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Not for himself, but not for himself. That is, he is going to die, but not for himself. He's going to die for others. Is that not what Jesus did? He suffered the just for the unjust. He died in the sinner's place. Isaiah in another place of his prophet said, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was ch uh, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And so the whole story is, at the end of 483 years, perhaps in the month of April, the Lord Jesus was crucified. He went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the people there, the Jewish leaders rejected him, and now they eventually hang him on a cross. So at that point, God punches the clock again. And it's been running 483 years. Y'all still thinking with me? Use your coconut now. For 43 years, and when Messiah is cut off, God punches the stop clock. And there is a period yet, wait a minute, he said there's going to be 70 weeks, not just 69. Where does this one other week, week of years, seven years, where does that come in? It comes in right here where we are in Revelation 6 through 19. For you see, God at Israel's rejection of Messiah took the spotlight off Israel. And he did what? If you know your Bible, you know. He turned from the Jew to the Gentile. The Jews were to be, as it were, the evangelists for God, but they failed. They crucified the very Savior. And now the Lord turns to the Gentiles to seek out a bride, a people for himself, and we call those people the church. I'm not talking about Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. I'm talking about those who are saved by the grace of God, been born of the Spirit of God, are part of the body of Christ. He turns the spotlight from Israel to the church. But now watch. In order to do that, the church has to be removed. The church has to be out of the way. 
For you see, from the time of the crucifixion of Christ until the rapture of the church, the Lord has been dealing and ministering and sending his message forth through the church. Folks, let's do it. The church is God's instrument in these days to propagate the gospel. I believe in the ministry of the church universal, yes, but I believe in the ministry of the local church. And I believe every born again, saved person ought to be a part of that part of the body of Christ, a local assembly. God has chosen that as, in, as his bride, and that's what he calls the church, as his instrument through which to work. Paul writes not to a universal church, but he writes to the church of Corinth to the church of Ephesus, to the church in Philippi, to the church of Rome. And these are local assemblies, you understand. Well, somebody said, I believe in the invisible church. Well, I believe in the visible church. I've never seen the invisible church do anything yet. I've seen visible churches accomplish a great deal. We got a lot of invisible members here at return, evidently, huh? But you never get them to do much. It's the visible. I'm talking about the real flesh and blood kind. All right, so what I'm saying is this. God has to take the spotlight off of the church and now when the church is gone, he comes back to fulfill as he has promised and we cannot accuse God of not keeping his promise. We cannot accuse God of saying, hey, here's what's gonna happen and then he just forgets that final week. Oh no, God said it and God will do it. Now where's the church? In chapter four of Revelation, look back at verse one. Up until chapter 4, we have been dealing in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation with what? Do you remember? The seven churches, Ephesus, Thyatira, Sardis, Pergamos, so forth, Laodicea, the church age, chapters 2 and 3. But I want you to look at something amazing in chapter 4 and verse 1. Remember this. The word simply is after these things. After God has spoken to the church, after he has dealt with the church, watch what happens. After these things I looked, John, a part of the body of Christ, a member of God's body, and behold a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet, that is a summons talking with me which said, Come up hither. Now I believe that is in connection with what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians. When he said, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven the shout of the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be called up. Come up hither. Shall be called up with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we, the church, ever be with the Lord. Now, where's the church? Where's the saved of this age and generation? Where's the church during Revelation 6 through 19? In heaven, in the presence of the Lord. Now, a lot of things will take place there. Well, we've got a judgment seat to appear before, not to determine whether or not you're going to heaven or not, but to give answer to God for what you've done on this earth and how you did it. Whether or not you followed him and is a place of reward. And there will be many who will stand there who will be saved, yet so as by fire. Nothing to offer God. They're just saved, a period, and that's it. It's going to be a time of many a tear. But nonetheless, the church is off of the earth. Now, as a result, God turns back and he punches his clock. And the clock starts running again. 
And it will run until, as far as God dealing nationally with Israel, until that seven-year period is complete. And that will, uh, that will be complete. And our Lord will come at the end of the, second, uh, end of the seven years. And literally, according to Zechariah, will put his feet on this earth and will establish his kingdom and his reign that he talked about, that all of the Old Testament prophets talk about. I want to tell you this. If that doesn't happen, what value is there in the prophecy of the Old Testament or the New? You see, the whole story is about a kingdom, about our Lord reigning over that kingdom. He taught us to pray, did he not? Thy what come? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know, listen, every time you pray that prayer, you know what you're praying for? You're praying for Jesus to come. You're praying for the king to come. Can't be a kingdom without a king. And when you're praying that prayer, a lot of folks in modernistic churches today, I guarantee you, have said the words of that prayer. And if they knew what they was asking for, it'd scare the daylights out of them. They're praying for Jesus to come. They're praying for the king to come. And yet, let me tell you this. Our Lord taught us to pray that, but listen to me. That prayer has not been answered. That prayer has never been answered. Yet it's been prayed by hundreds and thousands and millions of people. Thy kingdom, but hold on, folks. Though it hadn't been answered yet, thank God it will be. It will be because he has said it. And whatever he said has taken place and will take place. And that very kingdom is coming. But it will come as a result of our Lord coming in a cataclysmic appearance upon this earth, placing his feet. By the way, you know what? He's coming back to the same place he left. In other words, somebody said, if you want to get back on, get on where you got off. Jesus is going to come back to where? You know where he's coming? To the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. The very place where the Messiah was crucified and cut off and where God punched the clock and said, time out. I'm going to deal in another way with another people. I'm going to call a people to speak with a different tongue than you do. They're going to be Gentile people. They're going to be people who, who uh, you don't even think belong in this body. And so the Lord will come back, according to Zechariah, and place his feet on the Mount of Olives. You remember the New Testament where he was when he ascended into heaven? The Mount of Olives. And that old mount, the Bible says, and I don't have time to get into this, going to split wide open. I mean, just split in two. Somebody's trying to explain that the other day and said, you know, there's a great earth fault right through the Mount of Olives. And they said, that's the reason that mount. I said, no, it's not. If there wasn't even a fault there, all King Jesus would have to do is put his foot down and butt in and split wide open, whether there's an earth fault or not. Why do we have to have some kind of scientific explanation and make God supernatural appear natural? God don't have to, God don't run by your calendar and mine. He don't run by your laws and mine. Oh yes, he's established them, but as a sovereign God, he can overstep them anytime he wants to. But he'll come back and as he does, he'll begin dealing with Israel in this special way. Well, he, he'll deal with them rather. He begins at the rapture and will conclude that event when he returns to this earth. Now, I don't have time to finish this, so I'm going to finish it tonight. Is that all right? Or I can finish it now. Yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> I want you to get that. Let me just give you one other bit to think on this afternoon. In chapter 6 John of Revelation now, in chapter 6, John unfolds the judgments of God 
that begin the seven-year period, that last week that God said he had determined for his people, Israel, will begin the seven-year countdown until Jesus comes to the earth. Now, let me point out something to you lest you fail to understand. We talk about the second coming, and often we're referring, when we say the Lord's coming again, as a Christian, oftentimes we're referring to the rapture. And the word rapture is not found in your Bible. It comes from a Latin word, rapari, which means to catch away, to snatch up. And that's where we get the word rapture. Though it's not found in the Bible, that's our English word for describing it. Actually, the word is caught away, caught up. Uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first, which were alive remains shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That's the word rapture. Now, you say, well, I don't believe in that because the word not found in the Bible. The word Trinity is not found in it either, but I hope you believe in the Trinity. In other words, we believe that God is one God, yet he has manifested as three persons. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. So here what we have is this. We have the, the, the beginning, the countdown until Jesus returns to earth. Not the rapture I'm talking about, but the countdown begins at the rapture. You see the orange color, the arrow pointing upward, caught up to meet him in the air. Now then, in that period of tribulation, the large countdown is taking place until the Lord comes in his second coming and places his feet upon this earth and establishes his reign. Now, let me give you this. The judgments in, these, in chapter 6 through 19 are presented in a threefold series. Now remember this. A threefold series. Number one, seals. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven vials are the word vials simply mean bowls. It's like you've got an admixture in a bowl and you turn it up. The vials, the bowls of the wrath of God, God's wrath being poured out. Now, the seals, notice this, are those seals that were around that title deed, that scroll. And every time one of those is broken, something takes place. You know what that is? It's God's son claiming his rightful ownership of this earth. And he is putting forth measures to see to it that the old squatter is pushed off of the property that doesn't belong to him. So he opens the seven seals. Now watch, as you study this with me, you'll find that at the end of the breaking of the seventh seal, that one judgment moves into another. The seventh seal gives way to the first of the seven trumpets. And the last of the seven trumpets gives way to the vials or the bowls of the wrath of God. And you'll notice this, that in each instance, the, the judgment, the severity of the judgment becomes progressively worse. It becomes progressively horrible as men refuse the moving of God little by little. They refuse. And I want to tell you this. What God does, and that can be applied on a personal level, what God does in your life one day, in one way, if you do not respond to it, God can, well, they're talking about in the Middle East, tighten the screws. You know what that means? How he's done that in my life. God begins to tell me about something of rebellion in my life, God will turn a screw. And I begin to kind of feel that down inside. If I do not respond, God will tighten it a little more. And if I don't respond to that, he can tighten her down a little more. And listen, I believe God will do that in the life of the believer. And the Bible even talks about the sin unto death. I believe God, if he's moving on a fellow's heart as a child of God, and that child of God continues to rebel and resist the movement of God in his life, I believe God will take you home. I believe he said, it's enough. I've done tightening the screws enough, and there's no response. It's kind of like our situation in Iraq. 
Our government is putting the screws on Mr. Saddam Insane and tightening the screws down. And you hear the newspaper, Mr. Bush tightening the screws. Blockade, all this. You know what that purpose is? To get the fellow withdrawal from Kuwait without some kind of terrible conflagration. But if our nation holds true to its commitment, if Mr. Saddam, uh, uh, Mr. Saddam Insane doesn't really respond to that, I want to tell you, and I, I meant to say insane. I know his real name, but it's more insane to me than anything else. But uh, if he doesn't respond to that, you know what's going to happen? Conflagration. I mean, confrontation, judgment, warheads, bombs, threat, death, and so forth. And that's exactly what happens here. The seals are, in essence, a milder form of judgment that are the trumpet judgments. And the trumpet judgments are even a milder form than the most severe judgment of God, the vials of the wrath of God. And my friend, God deals with people today. And he's dealt with some of you in this audience. Maybe you're unsaved. Many a thing has come your way for God, uh, God's attempt to get your attention, to get you to respond, and you refuse to do that. I want to tell you something. He's going to tighten the screws on you. And if all of that fails, the most severe of all, the eternal judgment of God in hell, a burning literal hell forever and forever. Now, that's God's last stroke in dealing with the soul of man. But that last stroke is irreparable. There can be no return from that. But today he deals with your heart. Perhaps he disturbs your mind. Perhaps he gives you a sense of guilt and shame about your sin. Perhaps he's awakened you in your own heart to your need to receive Jesus Christ. And my friend, if you refuse that offer, God deals with you until finally, if there is no response and acceptance of him, God opens the doors of hell and men plunge in there forever and forever. I like to tell you this in closing. The scripture says God will have all men to be saved. He says that he has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation. You don't have to go through the judgment of God. For there is one who has suffered your judgment for you. You deserve it, I deserve it, but one died in our place, Jesus. He died not for himself, but for you and me, the just for the unjust. And I hear Peter saying it like this. He is not willing that any should perish. Perishing is not God's plan for you, my friend. God's will for you is that you turn from your sin, that you repent. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come into repentance. God's desire for you is that you turn to Christ, that you surrender your life, you yield yourself to him. That's God's plan. God's plan is heaven, not hell for you. But if you refuse his plan and his offer, you give God Almighty who is holy and just no other alternative but to let you slide into hell forever and forever. Let's bow our heads for prayer. As we bow together this morning, I prayed early this morning for you who would be here today, not knowing your heart. And I pray again now that if God has spoken to you and you've realized your need for Christ, my friend, that you'll not put it off. Folks, I'm gonna tell you something. We don't have long till this great, beginning of events that we're looking at right here is going to start taking place. 
all that should be ready when he comes. I believe the Lord's making a last effort to awaken men and women to this coming judgment. Signs of it everywhere in the world. South Africa, Peru, South America, the Middle East. Pointing our eyes to Israel, to the Middle East, where so much is going to begin to take place. Already God just set the stage, and I believe, bud, he's standing there ready to pull the curtain. But thank God in mercy he waits for somebody you to trust his son as personal savior. For you as his child to get right with God. I want you to surrender to him today, folks. That you not perish, but that you be saved. Let's stand together, please. Our heads are bowed. The message tonight, but as you who are here this morning realize, I, I didn't finish this one this morning. So we'll have to leave that one for some other time. Revelation chapter 6, and we'll continue our study here in this wonderfully thrilling book, the book of the Revelation. I hope that you are following along with us carefully. If you uh, uh, need uh, a tape of any of these uh, particular messages, we have them available. You need to give your name and to Brother Daniel and some of the fellows back there in the room so uh, they'll know what you would like to have. Revelation chapter 6 And we're considering still the four horsemen of Revelation. Chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 8, and this passage reads like this and says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. That's the prelude to a storm. One of the four living creatures, or four beasts, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bowl, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts, or the four living creatures, say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death and the hell or Hades followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. I tried to impress on you this morning that beginning here in the sixth chapter of Revelation and continuing down through verse 19... John gives to us an unfolding picture of a future period of seven years known by most of us as the tribulation period. It is a time of unprecedented horror and and, and trauma, of disaster, of war, of disease, of bloodshed, and of death. Jesus said, I reminded you this morning in Matthew 24 and verse 22, 
that except those days should be shortened, all flesh would indeed be destroyed. This period that we're talking about, as I indicated this morning on our chart, is the period between the rapture of the church, the orange arrow going up, and the yellow arrow coming down, which is the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Those are two distinct events, and in between those two events, there is a period of seven years of dreaded and terrible tribulation. It is called by our Lord the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. Men then who have studied this very fact of prophecy in the Bible are actually startled today as they see the stage being set before them that will usher in these great events that here the Lord spoke through John and John revealed to us. The eyes of the present world are upon the Middle East. And that is not a coincidence nor an accident, but I believe it is God calling our attention to this very part of the world where so much of the things that are revealed in chapter 6 through 19 and even onward uh, are going actually to take place. The Lord's center of activity for, for uh, most of the Bible has been the nation and the people of Israel and primarily the city of Jerusalem itself. Now this morning I tried to explain to you why there is going to be such a time known as the time of tribulation. We said according to chapter 5 that we studied last Sunday that it was, uh, 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 the reason was that Christ would finally come and annul the rule and the authority of Satan over this present world. Uh, you remember our illustration of the man who purchased the property, purchases the property, say, for example, on this day, what is this? August what? Uh, I don't even know what it is. 19, boy, y'all are awake. 19th of August, say he purchased on the 19th of August, but he does not come into possession of it until the 1st of November. The price has been paid and thus uh, he comes the 1st of November to claim his property. Now you recall that we said by way of that illustration that our Lord is the rightful owner of this world by right of creation, by right of redemption. And thus, he, it is his world, but he is yet not in possession of that that rightly belongs to him. The choir sang beautifully this morning, this is my father's world, and indeed it is. Though at present, Satan is known as the God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is refer, we referred to him as the old squatter, the renter, who is living on the property that literally does not belong to him. And so there will come a day, November the 1st, when the man who has the title deed to the property and that title deed for our Lord was seen in that seven sealed scroll in the fifth chapter of Revelation that we have already studied. And he will come with that uh, title deed along with him, uh, or rather he comes to lay hold on his property, but the old squatter, the renter, refuses to move. The man thus brings the officer of the law and they come to evict that fella from that property that is not his. 
a fight ensues. As we said, some chickens are killed and grass torn up, windows broken, and a lot of damage is done. And finally, the old usurper is booted off of the property, but not without a struggle. Now then, that is what actually you'll find in essence in this book of Revelation. Chapter 6 through 19 is the very strong and mighty effort of God's son to evict the old squatter and thus to come and set up his rule and his reign upon this earth. Notice our chart, if you will. At the second coming of Christ, wherein the battle of Armageddon will occur, then our Lord will put down all Gentile world rule, set up his reign upon this earth that will last for 1,000 years. After which that very thousand year rule and reign of Christ will merge into the eternal kingdom of our Lord that shall know no end. And so then we're here in Revelation 6 and 19 as the old usurper is being put off of his property along with those who followed him. A second reason of this seven-year period, we've said, was that our Lord comes to judge all who oppose God and to bring to completion his redemption. Remember he said this, and I'm going over what we've already said, but repetition's good, I guess. It's a good way to learn. Somebody said repetition is necessary because there's 4,000 young'uns that had never seen an elephant every year. And uh, the circus come back to town every year. I don't know where that come from or what it's worth. But anyway, uh, there's redemption. And it's threefold. The Lord's redemption provides redemption for the soul from the power, the penalty, and eventually the presence of sin. Provides for the redemption of the body. We wait for that redemption of the body, the release on the payment that he gave for us. That was the ransom. And then there's also included in that redemption plan the world itself presently under a curse. But when our Lord comes and sets up his reign, then he shall lift the very curse from this earth. Indeed, it is rightly titled the golden age. It is an age of prosperity, an age of peace, an age of blessing when King Jesus will sit on the throne of David physically after the flesh and will rule this very world, as the prophet says, with a rod of iron. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about why this period lasts for seven years. I spent a lot of time on that this morning. I'd only suggest that you consider again Daniel 9, verse 24 through 27. This great prophecy that is given in 600, uh, in, rather in the 6th century B.C. Uh, a prophecy God spoke through Daniel that set forth what he called God had determined 70 weeks for his people Israel. And we saw that those weeks were weeks of years. And that period known as 70 weeks that God has determined to deal with Israel comes out in years to 490 years. We found that in that same prophecy of Daniel that he said 483 years, and I'm using years now, 60, what is 63 weeks would transpire. And when those 63 weeks had transpired, then Messiah would be cut off. And we have the symbol here of the cross. So when our Lord was crucified... Uh, from the uh, from the going forth of the commandment under Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. until the crucifixion of our Lord totaled out to simply 483 years. 
The crucifixion, though was God's plan of redemption for us, was Israel's very word, firm word, that we will not have this man rule over us. We reject him, and Israel did reject the Lord Jesus. So what happened was this. Though God's time clock had been running for Israel for 483 years, when the Lord was crucified and rejected, God punched punched the stop clock. And that left one more week remaining as God had predicted of his dealings with Israel. Now between the stopping of that clock as it were and the resuming of God's dealing with Israel, we have an intermediate state, a period that we commonly call the age of the church. In other words, when Israel rejected Christ, God took the spotlight off of Israel, turned to the Gentile, and in the church where both Jew and Gentile can be saved, and those who are, both Jew and Gentile, whoever, saved, make up the body of Christ that we call the church. Now then, when our Lord was crucified, took the spotlight off of Israel, and he turns to the church. So now, this simple intermediate state, an undetermined number of years, not even mentioned in the scripture as far as the Old Testament is concerned. We know that it has lasted thus far around 2,000 years and the Lord has used the church as his instrument and his means of evangelizing the world, of getting out the gospel, of, of holding up the name and waving the banner of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, that period will soon end and it will end at the rapture of the church. Let me call attention to you one more time to Revelation chapter 4, where in verse number 1, we have a symbol and a picture of what's going to happen to the church at the end of the church age. And remember, if you've been reading Revelation, chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation deals with the churches of Asia, seven distinct churches that portray seven periods in the history of the church upon this earth. Now then, when that period is through, the Lord, according to, as he pictures in four, chapter 4, verse 1, <coughs> John was called up uh, out of this sphere, and the Lord said, he heard, John said, he heard a voice, and the voice said, come up hither. And John was called up. A picture of indeed what's going to happen to the believer when the Lord Jesus comes in the cloud with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, dead in Christ, the saved, others say, rise first, we which are alive will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture. Now, the church is removed. Now, watch this as you read Revelation. Though no mention is made of the church in chapter 6, through 19, as far as it's being on earth. If there is any reference to the church, you'll find that it is in heaven. It is not on this earth. And so then, the next time the church will be known on this earth will be when we come with our Lord to rule and reign with him, members of his cabinet, if you please, in that reign of Christ upon this earth. So the church is not here in this period known as the time of tribulation. The Lord has not appointed us to wrath, Paul said in the Thessalonian letter, but to obtain salvation. So the church is not, uh, will not go through this period known as the te terrible period of tribulation and great tribulation. Now let me say this. When the church is raptured, the Lord will punch his time clock again. 
And that will give that one remaining week that the Lord revealed to Daniel, which would make the 70 weeks or the 490 years. He's already dealt 483 years with them. But now he will begin again his dealing with Israel and the Jew as a nation. Now you'll find this. You'll find on over in the Revelation and uh, uh, very soon in fact where the Lord seals uh, 144,000 Jews out of 12,000 out of every tribe. And though the Bible does not say that they're going to be preachers, I have every reason to believe that they no doubt will be the bearers of the message of Christ. They will be preaching what Jesus called in Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom. Now we do not preach the gospel of the kingdom today. We preach the gospel of the grace of God. This is the grace of God. But these Jewish people and the witnesses during the time of tribulation will indeed be proclaiming the good news that the kingdom is coming and it won't be long. The Lord Jesus will come and set up his reign upon the earth. Well, I'll just mention those 144,000. I don't have time to go into that. We'll get into that as we come to it on over into chapter seven. Now then, in chapter six, let me remind you that here, John begins to unfold these judgments of God that will begin the seven-year countdown until Jesus comes and places feet upon this earth. Now, in close this morning, I gave you this, that these judgments of God to evict the usurper and to set up his own rule and reign, these judgments are in a threefold series. They are termed as seals, the breaking of the seals, the sounding of the trumpets, and there are seven of those, and their vials or bowls of the wrath of God, like you turn a bowl up and pour out its content, uh, that as well, seven of those. And so this number seven indeed is a very, a very familiar term or number in the book of Revelation. So what you have here is this. John's vision of Jesus has changed. It changes from Savior to it changes from lamb to lion. And here the judgments of God are begin, uh, will be to be poured out. I can only envision. But as John penned these words, given him by the Lord, his old hand must tremble as he felt and realized that the judgment of God that would come upon this earth and upon unsaved men and women. Now we come to chapter 6, 1 and 2. Let's look at these four horsemen, if you will. First of all, as you read verse 1 and 2, John says you heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, which I said earlier, this is the prelude to the storm, the storm of judgment. One of the four creatures saying, come and see. And I saw, this is what he sees. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bowl, and the crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now the question is, who is this rider on the white horse. Back in Daniel chapter 9 at verse 26 and 27, Daniel reveals in those two verses that a prince, a ruler, will come and will make a covenant with God's nation of Israel, undoubtedly an offer to protect them from her enemies. And Israel today is literally surrounded and outnumbered by many enemies, uh, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, uh, Iran, uh, all of those uh, Arabian countries arrayed and desiring literally the annihilation of this nation of Israel. Now, this writer, notice this, as he comes 
he begins his career as a peacemaker. He begins his career as a peacemaker. Now notice that what John saw, he sat on that white horse and he had a bow. But notice this. And what is not mentioned in scripture often is as important as what is mentioned. He has a bow, but no arrows. A bow, but no arrows. That's like having a shotgun with no shells. The whole story is he comes now, undoubtedly the bow suggests that he has behind him the promise and the strength of military might, but he comes now only with a bow and also with a crown upon his head. He will go from victory to victory and finally control the whole world system. Now, some have suggested that the rider on this white horse undoubtedly is a symbol of the conquering Christ who will defeat the forces of evil. Now, there's only one thing, or two, several things really wrong with that. They point to Revelation 19 and verse 11. And turn there just quickly so you understand what I'm talking about. Revelation 19 and verse 11. And here John writes about the second coming of Jesus, that is, when he comes to this earth. And he said, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes was a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And on down in verse 16, he hath on his vesture and on the thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I don't think of any problem identifying Revelation 19, 11 and following as being the person of Jesus Christ. Now back to Revelation 6, 1, where we find this rider on the white horse coming and he has in his hand a bow. Now indeed the horse, the white horse, from ancient times was a symbol of conquest and victory. Oftentimes, if a ruler or a king had conquered another territory, he came riding in on a white horse, which was the symbol and became, in succeeding times, the symbol of victory. Now, Satan's scheme, let me say this, his scheme has always been one of imitation. One of imitation. Back in Isaiah chapter 14, let me just ask you to note this. In chapter 14 at verse 14, where you'll find the words of Satan indeed recorded and his scheme and his plan and desire expressed. You remember that he said among many things, and here's what I want you to remember in verse 14. He said, I will be like the most high. Now, the two descriptive words of this rider on the white horse is the bow and a crown. In other words, a bow with no arrows, as was said, is a, is a, is a, 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 a man who comes heralding a peace. He wins through great overtures of peace. Now, I'll tell you what the world's looking for. The world today would gladly welcome any man who could promise them and provide peace on this planet earth. And men in the United Nations have as much as said so. 
If a man would appear on the scene who could show us a plan and offer us peace in this world, at this time we would gladly give the realm of authority of our nations into the hand of that man. And I want you to know, world leaders are waiting and looking for that kind of an individual. You see, fast, we're coming to a world organization. We come to a, we, we hear talk today about world government and literally in many textbooks in our classrooms, children are, 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 are scorned uh, for talking about nationalism or patriotism toward a nation. In other words, the trend today by those in leadership is to bring us to a one world government. A one world police force, a one world military might, a one world economic system, a one world currency, and all of that, listen, all of that is in the making now. Uh, Even to the point that world currency is already being printed. They say that possibly if you had 10 American dollars if you have, if, and you want to exchange that and if that system, when it comes in and is issued, you turn in $10 and you get one world dollar. In other words, that take care of a lot of our inflationary problems. The $10 American, one world dollar. And so the, the markets of the world are opening up by means of television, the jet age, all of these things, computers, all of these things are just fitting right in to what God's word talks about in relation to this one world system. Well, the Antichrist is who we have here. The Antichrist. Now, the word Antichrist is not found except in the epistles of John. In the Revelation, he's referred to as the beast. He is referred to as the old, as the, well, we call him the one world ruler. Uh, who rises up and takes the reins uh, of uh, world uh, government. Now, we'll have more to say about the Antichrist as we come on into the following chapters. But I do not think there's any question here. But notice not of the bow as he comes saying, peace, peace, I'm going to bring you peace, offers Israel uh, peace, and, and going to settle the Arab-Israeli dispute. And brother, anybody would welcome that in this present world. But the crown, uh, there are two Greek words in the New Testament that are translated crown. One word is Stephanos. The other word is diadema. And the word Stephanos is the word that is used here. He has a Stephanos, a crown, upon his head. Now the Stephanos, a crown, was a victor's crown. A crown that a man had won. It's something like laurels, a trophy. But the diadema is the word for the kingly crown. And that is the word that you'll find in Revelation 19, the crown that is upon the head of our blessed Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So here I think there's no mistake that we have before us the introduction just following the rapture of the church, the revelation of the man of sin. Paul wrote in the book of Thessalonians chapter 2 and he talked about that that man of sin would not be revealed in this time but when that catching away occurs, he that hinders, hinders now but he'll be taken out of the way and then that Antichrist will be revealed. Now it's very possible that the very Antichrist is alive today. I do not know. I do not know who he is. I don't think anybody else does. I think he will rise suddenly. And things happen so quickly in our world, do they not? 
But yet, uh, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for the Christ. Amen? I'm looking for Jesus, not the Antichrist. But nonetheless, uh, here I think we have the very introduction. I'll show you before a close an unusual analogy, a parallel between Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. But I want you to hang on just a minute before we get there. The second horseman, uh, indeed, is seen here in verse 3 and 4. And I must move quickly. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Now remember these seals are those seven seals that seal that title deed to the world, the scroll, that the Lamb alone was worthy to have by right of creation, by right of redemption. And every time one of these seals is opened, something more tragic begins to come. And, uh, but lest I should forget it, I think I should say this. Don't get the idea that God opens one seal, this thing takes place, and it's over with. Here comes another seal, opens that, and that's over with. Third seal, it's over with, so No, you'll find that they're running. It's kind of a running thing. The Antichrist is going to be on the scene for these seven years. Uh, he will make that covenant, as Daniel even said, with Israel for one, for one week. But in the midst of that week, three and a half years, he will break that covenant with Israel. He's going to give them a covenant that says, we assure you peace. We also are going to let you restore your uh, old uh, ways of worship. You can go back to the temple. You can institute animal sacrifices again if you please. And the Antichrist is going to make covenant. But Daniel said, in the midst of the week, he will break that covenant. And he will literally set himself up as God, seating himself on the throne and demand that men worship him. And those who do not worship him and do not bow to his system and do not receive his mark in their forehead or in their hand will not be able to buy nor sell. Now all that, folks, is ahead in this world. And it may not be long before it takes place. It's already in the making. And so I want you to see that and realize how close we are. Verse 3 and 4, this is a, uh, the horseman is, is red. Verse 4, they, there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and, they, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Now, red in the Bible is often associated with terror, with death, as well as anger. And we associate that with anger today. Somebody said, man, I saw red, you know. Not talking about somebody red-headed either, but I saw red. Well, it just, it's anger. All right, here, the, the color red is descriptive of terror and of death. Over in chapter 12, verse 3, you'll find mention of the red dragon. The red dragon. In chapter 17, verse 3, you'll find mention of the red beast. The red beast. So red is a symbol indeed of, and a picture of wanton bloodshed. Now this rider on the, on the red horse was given power, notice, to take peace from the earth. Now the Antichrist already promised peace. But now the second rider comes and, and John notices this, uh, the picture and the vision. And he comes and he has the power to take peace from the earth. The Antichrist begins his reign in peace. He comes with a bow. You'll find that Ezekiel prophesies that Russia will come down upon the Middle East in an attempt to overrun and defeat and conquer the nation of Israel. She will literally snatch peace from the earth. 
And along with her and her Arab allies, as they invade the Middle East to attack Israel, the war escalates. It begins to grow and spread until all nations are involved and that very involvement will culminate at the end of that seven-year period in what we know as the great battle of Armageddon when all nations are gathered against Jerusalem. The great, that, that great conflagration that uh, even military leaders often referred to. Now, that's fully developed, this thing of the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 16, if you'll make a note of that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to it. But you see, the Battle of Armageddon, let me explain this, is not just a one-time little battle. It is a thing that starts and begins to grow and grow and escalate. That's the reason I said this morning it is very possible that we could right now begin or maybe beginning to see the fomenting of emotions and the forming of attitudes in the Middle East which will culminate eventually in this great battle of Armageddon. For our eyes are upon the Middle East. God drawing the nations in. And in an amazing, we have multinational forces right now in the Middle East. Britain, France, United States, uh, Egypt, all these other. And so I think before us, there are some foreshadowings of what indeed is, is about to take place. And I want to say this for because I had some of you who said in the workplace, several people said, boy, uh, this thing of the standoff between the United States and Iraq, uh, this must be the Battle of Armageddon. No, it's not the Battle of Armageddon. I want to assure you of that. There are many things going to take place before that, but it could be the very beginnings of the nations of the world moving in that direction. So the greatest and most devastating battles in this period under the rule of that red horse the rider who now comes taking peace from the earth and wars breaking out, flaring out here and there. Uh, these will be some of the greatest battles and wars that have been fought in the history of the world. We've had some terrible battles. Uh, in World War Number 2, between 1939 and 1945, the deaths of soldiers and civilians has been estimated to be 54 million 800,000, just that one particular brief period. Since 3600 B.C., here's an interesting note, the world has only known 292 years of peace. Since way, 3600 years before the birth of Christ, our world has only known 292 years of peace. During that very period of time, 14,531 known wars have been fought on this earth, large and small. And it is estimated that 3,640,000,000 people have been killed as a result of those terrible wars that have occurred in that awful period of time. The value of destruction, that is uh, what's been destroyed in the, uh, in the, in the realm of money and, and wealth and so forth. Somebody said would pay for actually a golden belt that would reach all the way around this planet Earth of ours, 97 and two-tenths miles wide and 33 feet thick. Now, that's a lot of gold, don't you think? And at the price it is today, I think you could buy your car or two with that. The whole story is, what I want you to understand, great devastation comes as a result of war. 
And so a great sword, great power, great military might will be exerted by this one who has first come as a propagator and a preacher of peace and now peace is broken and war comes upon this planet earth. Verse 5 and 6. We have the third writer. And the third beast said, Come and see, and I beheld a low, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, we don't have any problem connecting black as far as its symbolism is concerned in the scripture. It is the symbol of famine. The symbol of famine. Take note of these two verses. In Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, concerning the drought and the famine that had occurred in Israel, the prophet said, and I quote, Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish. Listen, they are black unto the ground. The association of the color black with famine. Lamentation 5 and verse 10. Take a note of that. Lamentation 5 and 10. And the prophet said, Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. So in the scripture you find this association with the color of black to that of famine. The famine and war indeed go together. Following war, there is always invariably a shortage of food. There is the lack of food and famine as a result occurs. Now, I believe that what we have here too is a great economic catastrophe that will envelop this very world. A great tragedy in the world of, of the economy. Notice, a pair of balances is seen in his hand. A shortage of food then always drives up prices, do they not? Shortage of food, prices go up. And forces the government to step in and to begin to do what? Ration food. Ration food. That's what Joseph did down in Egypt. And that's what nations have done ever since. The great uh, destructive famines that came after World War I. The shortage of food after even World War II. The countries that have been stricken and smitten by war. Famine is always seemingly the result. Now, the economic catastrophe simply is this, that your money is not going to buy much. Uh, notice that he says here, notice this verse, a measure of wheat for a penny. The word in the Greek is denarius, uh, which is uh, uh, equal to about, uh, well, a denarius was in the time of John a day's wage, a day's wage. A measure of wheat amounted about two pints. Can you imagine, now listen to me, can you imagine paying one day of your wages to buy a quart of wheat? Now listen, I'm going to tell you something. If they eat at your house like you do at mine, that wouldn't go very far. That might keep Papa moving, but the rest of them would have to do without. The truth is, economic catastrophe and disaster struck. There is a shortage of food. Famine prevails in this very time of great tribulation. Now according to chapter 13, at verse 17 you'll find that only those who receive the mark of the beast, his stamp in their forehead or in the hand, only those will be able to buy and to sell. 
So you see, even those who refuse that mark of the beast and, fa- and refuse to bow to him, they will not be able to buy even if they had the money to buy. Now, John also said something else. Here's an interesting note, I think, a note of mercy. He says at verse, at verse, uh, uh, verse 6, the last statement, And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, there have been some suggestions about that, and some have suggested that this means that the rich will get richer and the poor are going to get poorer. That perhaps only the rich will be able to buy. If that is true, it will mean that the rich have sold out and bowed to the rule and the authority of Antichrist. But I believe it means something else. I think it is a note of mercy. In John's day, oil and wine were medicinal agencies. Remember, for example, Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. When the Samaritan found the man who'd been beaten by the thieves and left lying in the ditch to die, when that good Samaritan found him, he came by and he bound up his wounds, pouring in what? Oil and wine. It was a medicinal thing, all right? Look again, if you'll observe, in the book of of Timothy, Paul writes to young Timothy in uh, chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, verse 23, and he said, Timothy, drink no longer water, but drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and for thy oft infirmities. It's strange some people have stomach trouble altogether. I mean, all the time in our generation, don't they? And they use that as an excuse. Well, I won't go into that anyway. But anyway, here's what I'm saying. Uh, that is a medicinal, a, a medicinal agency. Not only that, but you'll find also in James chapter 5 and verse 14. Remember this? That if there's someone who is sick and he calls for the elders' church, let them come and anoint him with oil and pray over him. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick. So oil is again associated here as wine is with with medicinal purposes. Now, the reason I said I believe here is a glimmer and an expression of the mercy of God even in time of judgment. God is making a veil and said, listen, leave something for those who are hurting. Our God is a God of mercy, even in a time of judgment. And like the psalmist prayed, remember mercy. In judgment, remember mercy. And God shows this very expression of mercy, even in this time of severest judgment. Now, let me come to the last. And that is in verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8, the fourth horseman. And the scripture says, and I look, verse 8, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed after him, or with him. And power was given to them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. Death and hell, our verse says. The word is actually a Hades. And the same word for that in the Hebrew language is Sheol. It is the, it is the, it is the territory of the dead. So he says death and hell. In other words, death claims the body. Uh, Hades claims the soul, the realm of the dead. I don't have time to go into the fact of what happened uh, in that area at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, but men used to go downward at death. But after the resurrection of Christ, he led captivity captive. And uh, he gave uh, those redeemed uh, presence with him instead of living or remaining in the region of the dead. Now, watch what happens here. He says that he gives them authority uh, over a, a fourth part was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword. Now, that means a fourth, one-fourth of the earth's population will die. 
Can you imagine that? Now, we were shocked when the earthquakes occurred and killed so many people over in Russia. We're shocked when great numbers of people are taken out like that. But here in this time, now, I'm, listen to me. God said he give a fourth part of the earth is going to die. According to projected census figures, this will amount to nearly one billion people. Can you imagine a billion people? Listen, that's, I, I can't even, I can't fa fathom that. Can you imagine, for example, a thousand people? What if you go down here and there's a thousand people dead between here and your house? What if 5,000? What if 100,000? We're not talking about thousands. Here, according to projected uh, uh, census figures, uh, this will be death on a massive scale. One billion, one billion people who will be stricken with death. And the scripture says, notice, uh, to kill with a sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. In a time of famine when there is no food, even the beasts become wild and fierce. The president of Pakistan said not long ago, according, or not, not the president, uh, according to the Indian Institute of, uh, let me see here what I, want to, what I want to give you. I jotted this down and I even forgot what I wrote down. Oh yes, the president of Pakistan predicted that within a decade, 10 years, Human beings will be eating human beings in Pakistan because of a lack of food, because of famine. Now listen, we don't have any way of appreciating that here in well-fed dinner buckets and dinner baskets full in America. But brother, I'm going to tell you, there's a terrible time coming on this earth. And God says it in his word. And I think these famines that occur all over the world, in other parts of the world, I think God just telling us, hey, it can happen. And I want to tell you, folks, it can happen here. It can happen here. And so here, this, this very tragic thing of, of the beast who comes and, and kills and be, uh, uh, the, uh, the rider on this horse comes and then the wild beasts that are killing. I think of uh, like the country of India where the rat is a sacred kind of, uh, of creature. And yet the rat itself, uh, to every one person in India, there's five rats. Can you imagine that? And yet they're eating up billions of dollars worth of grain because worse. Not only that in India, but they got calves that are, that are sacred. And they're not supposed to hurt them. If a man steps on a rat around one of those sacred temples in India... He, is, he has to make a golden image of that rat that he's killed and offer that in the temple. I don't care how poor he may be, he's going to have to rake and scrape and do something, sell his wife and kids and whatever else he has in order to do that. But here we're living in a terrible world and we know so little about that here in this blessed land of America where we live. Well, these are the four horsemen. Now, before I close, I want to give you an analogy, a parallel between what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. I want you to look back to Matthew 24 just briefly. I'm not going to take time to explain all these things, but I just want you to see them. Now, in Revelation 6, as you're looking at chapter 24 of Matthew, look at verse number 5. Now, the Lord was giving this Olivet Discourse in response to the disciples' questions that said, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of, the com of thy coming and of the end of the world? I want you to understand this word world is the word translated age. The Lord's divided things in ages, in, uh, in uh, dispensations, if you please. So he's saying, what, what, what's the sign of the end of this age? All right, Jesus is going to tell you right here, tell his disciples, 
some of the same things that God showed Jesus on through John in the sixth chapter of Revelation that are going to occur. All right, I want you to look at verse 5. And he says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, you remember first rider on the white horse? The Antichrist. He shall come saying, I am the Christ. I am your Messiah. I am your deliverer. I am your liberator. I am your protector. And many in Israel, well, they'll, they'll follow him. And shall deceive many. All right? Now, look now, if you will, in uh, verse 6 and 7 of Matthew 24. And you shall hear of what? Wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and a kingdom against kingdom. Now, watch this. We said following that rider on the white horse, there comes the rider in Revelation 6, 3, and 4, the rider on the red horse, which is the symbol of famine, which are the symbol of war. And right here, Jesus is saying the same thing, following in sequence. For you shall hear of wars, rumors of wars, nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Now, remember, as you read the middle of verse 7, the rider of the third horse, the black horse rider which was a symbol of famine, remember? And he said in verse 7, B, the middle part, and there shall be famines and pestilence. And the word pestilence, by the way, is the same word that's translated, uh, that we get our word from epidemics. Epidemics. We have a lot of those today. Incurable epidemics, incurable diseases, and pestilence and earthquakes in divers places. Now then, here in verse number 7, notice the pestilence, uh, which uh, epidemics uh, will bring about death. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, the rider was the rider on the pale horse. So you have in sequence here what our Lord has said in Matthew 24. You have it over here in Revelation chapter 6. Now I don't have time to deal with this. We're not dealing with it. But the, the, the fifth seal uh, that in Revelation uh, chapter 6 and verse 9 uh, has to do with the proclaiming of the gospel. And in chapter four, uh, chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said of Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all, uh, in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, a lot of folks said, hey, the gospel got to be preached everywhere before Jesus come for his church. That is not what he said at all. He's talking about this end time event of the tribulation. Before the coming again of our Lord to this very earth, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. And I believe that is those who are sealed by our Lord, those witnesses, perhaps the 144,000, who are carrying forth, forth the message of Christ. And then in verse 12 of, of Revelation 6 that we did not discuss, when that seal is opened, great cataclysmic things occur, earthquakes. And then at verse number 7, you'll read in Matthew 24 that he said, uh, and, and there shall be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in divers places. Literally, uh, in the same place, at the same, or in many places at the same time. In the Atlanta Constitution this last week, and they may have it every week, they have an earth week, a little diagram. And they show you floods, earthquakes, fires, and all that by little symbols. And you'd be surprised last week there's about seven or eight earthquakes around this world. And they're increasing constantly. We know that. It doesn't take a smart fellow to know that. If you listen to the news, if you read the paper, watch TV news, you find constantly the thing about earthquakes. Well, somebody said it like this. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. 
Already the dawn may be seen in the sky. Rejoice then, ye saints. Tis your Lord's own command. Rejoice, for the coming of Jesus draws nigh. We are living in exciting days. We're living in days that we don't have to wonder as to what's going to come, what's going to take place in this world. We're headed fast in that direction, folks. I've been studying this old book for 30 some odd years, almost 40 years of my life as a preacher. And I'm going to tell you, I see more evident sign of these things beginning to form and take place than I have ever witnessed in my entire life. And they're taking place with great rapidity, quickly, moving, almost overnight. Things are moving into place, moving into place. God help us to be ready whenever that hour comes. And you see... The things that I've talked about here are things that are going to happen after the rapture of the church. That event could take place this night. It could take place tomorrow. It could take place five minutes from now, five seconds from now. There is no, nothing, nothing in Scripture that has to be fulfilled yet that's prophesied before the Lord comes in the air to call His church out and take the spotlight off us, turn it to Israel and start His clock again with them. I ask you this question, are you ready? Are you, are you certain and sure in your heart that you're saved? If you're not, my friend, make sure tonight. And if you're here and a born-again child of God and there are things in your life that you'd be ashamed of if Jesus were to come for his bride tonight, God help us to have a clean garment, a pure life, surrendered, and our plow pointed in the right direction if he should come. Let's bow for prayer.